Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Um, I will call the meeting of the Human Resources Committee to order at 506. Joe looks at his watch and says, what? It's not 3 o'clock. 506. And um, if we could have a roll call. Trustee DeVries. I'm here. Trustee Hernandez. Here. Trustee Jensen. Here. And Trustee Peterson. Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. And then um, we, um, the clerk mentioned that there was an update to the package, and um, so I think everyone's aware of that. If they want to update um, what was presented in board effect, I'm going to do that myself. But um, the first thing we have on here is approval of minutes from our January 9th meeting. Has everyone had a chance to take a look at the minutes? Yes. Yes. I need approval. Second. Second. It's been moved and seconded. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay. And then our next item is item B, Human Resources Dashboard Review. Okay. Everybody. Thank you, Tracy. So you see on the first slide, uh, time to fill and time to onboard is wrapped up in the last quarter. Um, generally behind the scenes, the is going pretty well. The reason for the creep up is we're hiring psychiatrists. You may recall at John George, we're placing the TBH physicians with employees who will be represented by UAPD. The, the time to fill on those is significantly longer than our general position, so as we've started to fill those roles, it's dragged the data up, it tends to skew it. We think this will even out over time, and so by the end of the year, we think we'll be back on track. But as we fill those positions, any physician positions, it, it tends to drag the data up towards longer time to fill, and the same for time to start as we onboard people. Um, and any questions on that? So that's yeah. just this quarter? That's this quarter. Overall, it's been going well. Year to date, it was running actually significantly below target. Uh, it just got, as we start to fill those positional psychiatry positions, then it's going to drag the data up simply because the position. How many level. quarters will that take to? I think it's, ongoing? Yeah, it's going to be ongoing. You know, it's going to take, I would say, we'll be recruiting them into next year. Do we want to adjust benchmark? I don't think, you know, the benchmark should be fine. I think as we fill more positions, it should wash out over time. We're going to see little blips as we fill a position here and there, but we think there's enough data that it should wash out. And if we think there's a problem, we'll bring it back to you and ask whether or not you want to see the psychiatrists and MD recruitment separately. Uh, that may be helpful, but at this point, I don't think we need to change the target. Um, I guess it's a little premature, but we won't ever be seeing any, AHP won't ever be part of our um, recruitment, but we will. Well, it, it's an interesting point. We actually recruit on behalf of our Mita Health Partners. We do the physician recruitment for them, either directly or through okay. agencies. It depends. So um, we do that now? We do that now. Because uh, AHP will maybe growing pretty dramatically. Yeah. Yeah, and so at least we're sitting in the background. We, we, we use a position manager for that, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So we have we, that data is in there, okay. right now. 
uh, we do need the recruitment for them as they add uh, people to that group. Uh, the first group we did, there were already AHS employees. We transitioned them over, and uh, so that was insignificant. But over time, we've been adding very specialists and doing that work right. on behalf of HP. Well, as we have seen from um, from the OBGYN and the, um, the other of our department heads, that, that does take a long time. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, an average physician takes about 12 months. Right. Obviously, there are certain sort of specialties that even take significantly longer. Primary care usually takes a little bit less. So we may want to revisit that. Yeah, we may want to revisit and pull that out because it may be useful because it's going to skew the data a little bit, I think. Um, next is residents of Alameda County, new hires and current employees in terms of the applicant pool. Uh, so the applicant pool stayed about flat uh, with uh, for the previous measurement period. New hires went up from within the county, but current employees stayed about static. And so, again, this was a, a measure for us to watch. We don't have a specific target for this. Um, as we try and be more local in our hiring, there's a slide later that talks about more local hiring events that we're engaged in. We're not really aiming to have a specific number because I think there are endemic issues uh, to the Bay Area generally where employees move away. And so either because they can't afford to live in or close to Oakland, whether it's through gentrification or other issues, um, or they make economically more, so they may be start as a CNA, ultimately end up as a nurse, and have, have a higher income and may choose to move slightly further away from where they work. And so there are issues that cause us not to have a specific target here, but again, we can always revisit that. Um, workers' comp, so the, the first line uh, lost days, we have been working with our vendor, you may recall, we changed our provider um, or our broker for workers' compensation insurance. And the, what we're looking at now uh, as a benchmark is 1.83 average days per FTE. We have been measuring number of lost days overall. Uh, our broker and workman tells us we should look at the number of lost days per FTE. What that means is the target in each quarter is going to vary because it's going to be based on the number of FTEs worked in a given period. And so as that goes up, then the target goes up as it comes down. Uh, so there may be some seasonality, both in the target and then the actual lost days. The broker has given us a target of 1.83. has also warned us that that number is a little lower than we might expect to see because they're working typically with smaller hospitals. Our pop they don't have an exact comparison to us. So we've got clinics, acute care hospitals, psychiatric hospitals, which tend to have a higher injury rate, um, and skilled nursing and subacute. They don't have a comparable that they feel comfortable with, so we're still working with them on this. And in the end, he's advised that we should measure against ourselves, but we're still considering that at this point. But this was the external data they came up with. Uh, and then our workers lost uh, injuries as high than uh, the goal for the quarter. In talking uh, to our workers' comp manager, he indicates there's some seasonality to this. They expect it to smooth out by the end of the year. Uh, they look at individual departments. They're not seeing anything that stands out of note that we can address. We are working um, on doing a large amount of ergonomic evaluations at this point in time. Uh, we have done 379 preventive evaluations so far this year, in the fiscal year, uh, which is significantly up from the previous year, um, which we, we did 314 in 2017. We've done 380 this year, ergonomic evaluations. I expect that number to go up with EPIC. 
Um, so we, we would expect to see potential injuries come about because of the increased number of clicks that people will have to go through. Uh, particularly, I would expect that number to go up at the community hospitals where there's a mixture of both paper and uh, IT system being used right now, EHR being used right now. And so when we get to that, there'll be a lot of ergonomic evaluations conducted, but I would expect the, the injury rate to go up in those facilities simply because of the transition to EPIC. Go up from 71? Uh, yeah. But it's gonna, I think it's going to be specific. In those areas where we haven't been using the EHR on a regular basis, I think we'd like to see more carpal tunnel injuries. We'll have to do the ergonomic evaluations to try and prevent that. But I would expect that number to go up. Because there's, there's a mixed use right now with both paper and with computers. And I think as people move entirely onto a computer-based system, we're likely to see more wrist injuries, strain injuries because of that being in front of a computer all day. And Probably, will there be people who are only using paper that will be using keyboards now? Yes. So there, as we move entirely to Epic, I think there are some people who are probably keeping shadow files right now where they make notes. Those will go away. They will only be Epic. And so I think that's, we're working right now with the SEIU Ed Fund, uh, Lisa Marie's team, as, as also working with IT so that we can train people in basic mousing skills. We have people who are not computer literate, and so we need to build that before we even get to epic training for some of our staff. Uh, and so we're working on that. That will lead to injuries. Did, uh, did, did you say mousing skills? Mouse skills. <laughs> Actually, just navigation. Yes. Uh, your, your cat is available for a consulting gig. <laughs> I understand. Um, Basically, I would expect that there are people who have worked here. When we acquired Alameda Hospital, we did basic IT training for the staff. Mm -hmm. uh, some had never used a computer in the workplace. They probably used it at home, but not at work. Uh, we expect to see transitional issues, uh, but we're trying to deal with that now before EPIC training formally starts. When it does start, I think we'll start to see some challenges with employees that we'll try and work through with them. We'll give them as much training as we possibly can, and then also, obviously, they'll get the formal EPIC training before we go live on the system, and then post-go-live, there'll be elbow support and trainers to help them. But I do think it, there are going to be a couple of things that come up that we're going to have to keep an eye on from HR standpoint. One's injuries and making sure that people have the equipment they need to do the work. The other is the, the stresses that are going to come on people as they find themselves um, in an environment or faced with a situation they're incredibly uncomfortable. Right. Uh, we've had a couple of people not be able to become certified in effort. Most of the employees who've gone to training have been able to become certified, they've been successful, but not everyone is, is comfortable. And I think that's going to drive up some stresses, and unfortunately, once we do this, there's not another location for them to go to right. where we don't have EPIC anymore. Uh, right now, they could transition from one facility to another. We'll have jobs that don't require computer skills at all, but anyone that's using a medical record is going to have to use EPIC, and I think that's you know, there's something we have to be aware of as an organization that there's going to be a discomfort. We will help everyone as much as we can, but some people are not going to be cut out for the work once we've gone past, uh, gone past implementation bit. That's something I guess we never really discussed very much. You know, yeah. about the, but it's very common. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's we, we are we do work with SEI, the SEIU Ed Fund. I've got a slide later that talks about some of the things that we're doing, and so I can talk more about it there. It might be useful. 
Great. So uh, turnover picked up in the quarter. Uh, there are a couple of issues there that we're looking into right now. Feedback on managers, first year turnover. Well, can you just, so it says turn count 48, so it picked up by 10 or so? Uh, the turn, well, the turn count for overall went from 125 to 152. Um, and then first year turnover was 25 I, 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 to 42. Oh, okay. So that's so the overall was it was 150. Yeah, went from 125 to 152. Okay. For the quarter. So it went up by about 27. But, yeah. but the biggest gain seems to be among nurses. Is that correct? Um, Game bad word, um, the biggest increase. increase yeah. Yes. And it, okay. Yeah. And typical turnover first year nurses annually is about 25%. And so we're, we're low, we're lower than the benchmark. Obviously, it's not, as I mentioned before, we want to be better. But last year we were at 6.45. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good compared to mm -hmm. 25. For the previous quarter, sorry, yeah. No, wait. No, for the previous quarter. This quarter we were at six. Yeah, this quarter. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. And I would expect it to even out towards target as we go through the year. It's, there's some seasonality to it. It was an unusually low quarter for all turnover last quarter. We were looking at 10%, uh, which was below uh, what we expected. This quarter is higher than we expected. Yeah, and, and Tony, I just got to raise this question because mm -hmm. I had raised it last time. When I saw those figures and then I went to the next page on the exit interview, there's yep. three things that I'm really super concerned about. Number one is that I asked to separate voluntary from involuntary departures. The data might be zero for certain items, but it would be helpful to look at the data distinctly for those two different populations. And okay. third, we have data from 2016, July 2016 to March. That means that we've got an extremely large range of time that's covered in this mm -hmm. graph. It would be better to have it by year, to really be very granular and look specifically, is there a change over time on what is causing people to leave? So maybe it's always gonna be time shift schedule, uh, retirement. Maybe those are always gonna be the two, but it, it just seems like uh, it's a request that's been made, and it's on the on the prior um, minutes of the meeting. And number two, just really concerned that we not lose sight of the granular nature of analyzing the data. So we do that. I guess the question is for the, this group: is that the direction you want to take? Because as we get into smaller data sets. There are going to be periods where there's very little to no turnover, and I'm, I'm trying to work out what, for the board use, what you would do with that well, data. Yeah, and I ha I'm happy to write. We can work out. Um, I'm looking at this. We can work out how to provide that to you. So I'm happy to do it. We've got a note in the minutes, and we'll make sure that happens for next time. And try to work out if you sort of break it down to very small groups. We've got from 2016 to 2019, that's 769 answers. If you look at quarter to quarter, the numbers are going to be, at a 45% response rate, are going to be very low in terms of data that's useful to analyze. And that, hence, we're trying to get a large enough data set that's useful to, for you to see a trend. And if we shrink the data set, there could be 20 people or less in there. Uh, and I'm trying to see 
is that useful to you from a broad perspective? It is. We're happy to provide it. There's not a problem in accessing, getting the data. Uh, and I apologize for not getting it in the way that you'd asked for previously, but I'm trying to get to some, it, will that be useful to you? Joe? Uh, no. I, nothing. Well, no, I mean, I see what you're saying, Tony, because if we go down to job availability of resources, if we go down to the bottom, there's 10 people left in the past almost three years. Correct. Okay. But, so Maria, if, if you want to, can we ask to break it, to break down the, the top year. year or something? No, no, just by year. Well, well, this is 2016 to March 2019. But, 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 Why aren't we looking at it by year? I, I, I see what you're saying, but is this, am I right? If we look at these reasons, if we, if, can we say like, okay, so can you say in 2016 that um, two people left because of management or other reasons? Yes, okay. we'll do that. We'll break it down by that. Okay. Is that, 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 is just compare where we were last year to right now, like we're doing for those other charts. Mm -hmm. This is close to three years worth of data. I get the I, I get the idea about having enough numbers, but I'd like to be a little bit more mindful. If there is something that's spiking, what is it, if anything? Maybe nothing, but can't do it from here. Yeah, I, anyway, my only concern is, as I mentioned before, is the size of the data set. And so if four people live across managers with 400 managers, that's not necessarily a trend. You know, it's four individual managers in five acute care hospitals, four clinics, and a thousand administrative staff. Right. And so, you know, if you want to see it that way, then we'll provide it. I just want to make sure that it's useful to you in sort of where we're trying to get to. Well, for example, uh, maybe, um, like, involuntary unsatisfactory performance. So that might be something that would be useful to know if that's happening um, or, or not happening. Is that something that we're, we're paying attention to? So in general, from the stuff that I've seen in other organizations, this kind of data is broken up into two camps people who voluntarily leave, the regretted losses, people who say, I've had it, I'm leaving, or I'm retiring, or I've just found a better job, or we're moving out of state. Those folks are leaving for reasons that, you know, you can't really control. They're, they're, there's just personal timing of things. Then you see this data based on uh, people who were terminated. So in that camp, they may not have any uh, folks that say they retired or any folks that say they were relocated. Mm -hmm. It will come down to, uh, you know, management, other, environment, coworkers. It might be any number of these other things down here. Uh, all I'm saying is, historically, we have not had a lot of data on what's happening in the culture of the organization. And we're trying to get better at that, and mm -hmm. I think we should look at data differently in order to do that. That's my yeah. request. You know, we implemented this in 2016, so no, there, there is no data 
prior to this. And then we really got sufficient data set to, to analyze. Below that, there's simply, and so we can analyze the 769 people, but that is all we have to analyze in terms of historical data. So we can cut it up in a different way. Okay, so the, that sample of exit, I mean, there's one thing I want to point out that's huge here is that that's people who volunteered to take the I, survey. I, I, I know. Correct. Which is, you know, already about half. Actually, yeah. almost, right on, almost right on the mic. I, well, I'd be curious if those who didn't volunteer, ter yeah. are there, those who were terminated, who left involuntarily, yeah. uh, what that end is, like how many of them took the survey? Because, well, it's in. Well, yeah, I mean, not how many of them yeah. didn't take the survey. So I guess what I'm saying is, all of right, that other half, how many were terminated, how many left voluntarily? It, it, would, be, it would just be interesting to know. Because mm -hmm. um, it's, yeah. I don't know if I'd fill out the survey if I got fired. I don't know either. Um, some organizations, you know, they don't have a lot of, we have a pretty good response rate for our um, exit interview, so that's a good thing. But it would be good to look at it a little bit more granular, just yeah. year to year. Okay, so just to recap, and um, we want it by year, um, calendar or fiscal, do you care? No, I don't care. Okay, so year to year, and then separate it out by voluntary and voluntary, and yes. then by reason. Yes. Um, and even if some of those categories are zero, it doesn't matter. Yeah, understood. Got it. Okay. I mean, I. That's uh, that's fine. I I just see I can tell that there's about maybe less than two hundred of the of the 700, maybe two or 300 of the 769 are, were terminated. So to Joe's question, it would be good to know how many people were terminated. In total, in total. Total. I understand yeah. the question. How many involuntary terminations yeah. in the same period of time? Yeah, so... Um, um, the only question I would add to that, um, and I'm, I'm speaking to Lisa Marie more than you, is yeah. to separate out layoffs. Right, because as we look at turnover, if I go back um, here to here, everything's in, there's a fully loaded turnover. So we made a decision a couple of years ago not to exclude anything. I don't know that that's the best decision, but it's the decision we made as we sort of set this data going forward. So involuntary terminations are in here, and so are layoffs. So when we do reorgs and we see reductions in force, frankly, that will skew the data and has previously because they're included. Can you separate them? We can separate it, and we just need to make sure that we do that and, and keep that maybe keep that out of here because it's going to skew the data if, if we make those decisions. And it, it's not a performance issue. It's not a vote. It's not, it's not certainly not a issue. It's also not a, a performance issue with the employees. So you break it down. You have involuntary load off slash job elimination. Yeah. You have that category here. And, I, so and I, I don't think that's a skewing. I think that's just reality. Joe, uh, yeah. so here it's included when I go back to the previous, oh, the, oh, the total turnover is what I'm talking about. Oh, no, I got it. So we're looking at two really different things there. Yeah. 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 I see. I see. I, I yeah. was on his track, wrong track. Okay. 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 So we, we call that. We'll go to you next time. It will be that way. If there's more modification we want to make after that, then we can look at that and, and do so. Okay, so I uh, thank you. Um, Trustee Jensen asked me just to sort of provide an update uh, on a couple of awards. This one is Lisa Marie's team. We recently won a recruitment uh, diversity award. 
Um, the team has been doing a lot of work, and I'll talk about later about local hire initiatives that they've been doing. Uh, but under recent Marie's watch, and Mani Chohan, who worked for us, the recruitment manager, they made a really big, uh, made really big strides in working with the EDD and doing work training people to interview, going to the EDD, getting people ready to unprepared for jobs, as well as doing direct recruitment events themselves. Most recently, I think at the Teenex um, social worker event that was held pretty locally, we didn't have a lot of um, employees there. I think it was only five or six, of which we were one, uh, but we wanted to make sure our presence was there, and also uh, the team has been working really, very well in terms of building out the sources we use, working with different websites, and sure we attended appropriate events to try and broaden you know, the objective of diversifying the workforce. Um, these are Sakali and Sean who actually received the award on our behalf. They're doing the hard work, but under this Marie and Monique's um, supervision. Um, the next is the Link Learning Award. Um, Dovecchio told me he was going to speak about it on the board, but I already planned to put it in here in the slides. We're ready to go. Um, Link Learning is really a, an approach, as some of you will know, as we're not, in terms of developing high school kids and giving them work experience, not just working with them in a school setting. And so Health Path really, in its entirety, is Link Learning. And so we bring a multitude of kids in, about 600 a year now, to go through various programs uh, within the organization so they can actually develop, uh, get experiences in healthcare that they wouldn't otherwise get, and then they can transfer those skills back to high school and hopefully into a career. Um, in working with Jessica, whose team have done uh, the heavy lifting on this, we haven't been able to track yet kids working their way through because the program simply hasn't been in place long enough. Uh, when did it begin? Uh, probably two years ago, three years ago it started. They started with middle, the first year and a half they dealt with middle, middle school kids. Then we transitioned to high school because we thought it was more appropriate. It's closer to college age and helping people make that transition seem a better option for us and also for the kids. Um, the question for us now is funding will run out the end of 2020 uh, for Health Path and for the Sim Lab. The simulation lab has been moved under quality, uh, and but we do a lot of work uh, with high school kids in the Sim Lab. They come and get some experience. We've moved it under quality going forward and out of HR because it's used more broadly than Health Path. It's used to do surgical simulations, all kinds of simulations, and so that's been centrally managed by the quality department in the new fiscal year. Uh, but also money runs out for Health Path at the end of 2020. Uh, we got a grant from the Atlantic, the Atlantic Philanthropic Association, um, and it was about $10 million. Uh, they, ha they funded the simulation lab and they're funding the Health Path program. We actually, the grant itself ends at the end of this calendar year. Uh, we found a way to pay the money forward to, to end the fiscal year, but beyond that, there is no funding for these programs. And so we're looking at ways right now to make them sustainable through external and other grants and means. Uh, and then we'll have to make a decision about operational work we can afford beyond what we're able to fund through grants. It's, we've had the freedom until now, which has been useful for us to really build the program, and we've got it beyond our expectation. The numbers are very large and, and higher than we expected, but obviously that the grant funding is going to come to an end, and so we're going to have to assess what we're doing, and we're doing that right now and looking at alternative grant funding. So, just an observation. At first, when I saw this, I thought, because um, I work um, for a parent company um, mm -hmm. at LinkedIn, 
and their initiative internally is called LinkedIn Learning. But having said that, uh, they do quite a bit of um, support around career development mm -hmm. and career initiatives. So who knows? Maybe they might like that because it's called LinkedIn Learning. They may. So it would, it would be worth asking if they might support this. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll give you a name. Thank you. Did this used to be called the POP program? Pop. 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 Yes, it did. Oh, it is the same program. Yes, the same. and then we changed the, the name to Health Path. Okay, what, what did Pop stand for again? I have no recollection. Okay. <laughs> before I, it moved on to me, so I don't know what it was called, but I'll, I'll certainly find out. And as I recall, this we were targeting some schools, like I don't I think, were we not working in Sabrina mm -hmm. Park in Madison Middle yeah. School? We were in with South, South Hayward? Yeah, we, well, no, we worked with Oakland Five Oakland Unified School District specifically okay. with the foundation. We do uh, we do some work outside of the Oakland Unified School District, but that's fairly limited because the grant was very specific okay. to work with at-risk youth in Oakland. No. Uh, it's a mixture of genders, but um, with a heavy focus on African-American boys or boys mm -hmm. of color who are considered to be of higher risk from an educational and development standpoint that may not go on to college or complete high school. And so that was the target audience of the grant. Mm -hmm. So that's who we work with. We have other programs, FACES and others, that are, that are in a later slide that we do work with at San Leandro and Alameda hospitals. Uh, but the grant was very specific to the Oakland Unified School District. And these youth, you can show that these youth, uh, well, you can't, okay, sorry. You can't yet show that they've gotten jobs in the healthcare sector because they started in junior high and we're not there yet. Correct. Right? The, the first year and a half of junior high, we then transitioned to high school kids. Mm -hmm. Now the question becomes, the idea is to go on to college mm -hmm. um, for them and they can get into professional careers. Some of them won't and they may ultimately become employed here. We don't have the data on that. We're working with a vendor that's tied to the grant right now so we can get appropriate reports that will show us where people end up. And do any of these learning programs have a video component, an online component? No. But, um, let me think about it. I'm saying no quickly. I don't believe that's the case. They physically come in here, and there are reasons for that. that and not that part. I'm just yeah. saying, is there is there a complement of online learning for those students that are part of all of these? No. The, the online, any online piece would happen in their own school. It does not. We don't, we don't deliver that content. For us, it's practical, hands-on, uh, going around. The, the only, there isn't an e-learning element to the, to the way that we have the program designed right now. Yeah, we took, we, I had an orientation to the simulation yeah. lab. Right. It was pretty impressive. I'm just curious if we have data on the students and on, on some performance metric that you can use or we can use um, to continue to seek additional grant funding to continue the program. Uh, I, I just know these communities that, that we're targeting and you know having that economic pipeline is so important. Um, you know the mayor has her Oakland Promise initiative which helps to fund college for a lot of youth in these same communities and I just wonder she's been able to raise a, a, a really a lot of foundation money. Yeah. I'm just wondering if to, to prevent this thing from drying up, yeah. are, we, are we seeking new funding sources? Yes, Outside right of Atlantic Philanthropies, we are. Yes, 
Okay. Yeah, that's, as I mentioned, the, the money will run out at the end of fiscal 2020. We're working now on it. It's a little difficult to work on new grants while you're still drawing down on grant funding, but we are, in fact, working on that right now. Uh, we're working with someone from our foundation who we may bring in as a consultant specifically for this project, and so we're working on way through how to make it sustainable past 2020. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, and the late learning... Um, Award. Uh, it's a statewide coalition of, ed of the education industry, community organizations. Uh, Del Vecchio was asked to go down to California with, uh, I believe, the Oakland Unified School District uh, Superintendent, and they presented together, answered questions on this. So it, it was useful from an exposure standpoint for the program and something we could probably look back at again as we try and raise funds for what we're actually doing. So this is a little hard to read. Um, the next two slides were I referred to earlier as programs, and it's a mixture of Lisa Marie's team working on career development and also the Health Path program that deals with students from outside. Uh, right now, on the far left, as you look at it, the pipeline program, those are external. So HEAL um, and the East Bay Innovation Grant, they're all emphasis for the future of programs that we work on right now. ELAM, the bottom, is the fellows program where we work on a medical, with a med medical students. Uh, all of those are programs that we work with with kids outside. They come in, do some sort of internship or interaction with our organization uh, and do some career development. So we're working constantly with the community, ideally to get them into careers in healthcare. Mm -hmm. I said, Delvecchio and I have discussed this a number of times. I don't really care if they work here. Uh, I care that they get a career and a choice. If they do, it's great, but that's really not the ultimate aim of this. Um, when I held a workforce development job at Kaiser, I found it frustrating because I had uh, workforce planning consultants and I was very much, uh, the question Joe you just asked, was frustrated because they, we weren't hiring them and it just irritated me because I was in an operational part of the company and my job was to fill jobs. Uh, across Northern California, and so workforce development to me meant we were getting people pipeline that would then come to work to, uh, for us. And I thought if they should, um, we were doing community good, it should be in another section of Kaiser, because where they were held accountable for that, because I was held accountable for something else. We hold a different mission. It doesn't matter if they work here. It matters that they work somewhere, that somewhere is somewhere hopefully better than they would have worked without this opportunity. Uh, if they work at the CHM, they go to San Francisco General, another county, or a not-for-profit, it doesn't really matter. If then they have a job and benefits and can enrich the community, that's the goal of these programs. And it's very much what we, um, Lisa Marie's team, on some developing their own staff on career paths, and then Jessica Pitt's team, who are the health path program, and focused on in this area and have put together, this is sort of a grid just to show you what the number of programs we're working on right now. Some of it with outside kids as you move from left to right. We have incumbent worker programs. We've got a contract with the SEI Ed Fund. Uh, the High Road to Training Partnership right now is to take a number of employees in our EVS department, uh, get them back into preparation for a higher level of education. So not to get them into higher education, but to, to do an eight-week course, or 16-week course, sorry, where they get ready to go back to a junior college or, or a higher level, simply because they've been out of education for most of their adult life, and they, they simply weren't ready to go back. Now we're trying to work with them uh, to get release time in their units, which the Ed Fund is trying to help us pay for, which allows them then to go on to an appropriate college course. Um, Sorry, I just want to clarify a question. 
Are we looking for funds to continue our participation in that LinkedIn learning, linked learning right. in California, or is the entire program going the to entire be, program? Oh, the entire program. No, sorry. We are, HealthPath is our program, okay. and we have multiple elements on, on the left-hand side of the various things we do under HealthPath. Linked Learning is a statewide collaborative, uh -huh. and they gave us the award. I don't know where they are from a funding perspective, but our funding for the programs we run, uh, for, for anything that we do, will run out at the end of 2020. Okay. Sorry, I just that, That's okay, I just that's a good question. We're doing a pathway mapping project so we can do, work out career development uh, from the entry level all the way up through the organization. Uh, we're working with the SEIU Ed Fund on coders, i.e. coding is a highly sought and reasonably pretty well paid profession, medical coding. Um, we're going to have people who potentially will be impacted by uh, the implementation of EPIC. Uh, jobs that they're in now may not exist in the future in exactly the same form. And so if we can build an apprenticeship with the SEI Red Fund, then that's a good pathway for employees. Again, whether they ultimately work with us or not, uh, it gives them a profession that they some of them potentially don't possess now. Mm -hmm. Coding is in high demand. People can work from home as coders. Mm -hmm. It gives a lot of flexibility to various uh, employee populations that they don't uh, possess. Uh, we're working on an apprenticeship. Uh, we, there were a couple of things we did with MAs. One was we moved our primary care MAs to require certification, which they didn't previously do. And the SEA Ed Fund is helping them upgrade their skills. Secondarily, they want to put an apprenticeship program together to move people to be MAs, and we're working with them on that where we would give them the opportunity to get their practicals in our facilities. Uh, and so they may be our employees or they may come from outside. And so we're working with the Ed Fund on those programs right now. And, uh, are, yes. Are these, are these tracking, like, so is the HEAL program tracking across, like, is Le it? Is no, uh, vertical, the, the furthest left column. Okay. Um, and vertical going down. The others are by title. So pipeline programs are predominantly the health path programs. Incumbent workers are a mixture of our relationship oh, with okay. SEIU and the okay. Reese team. Local hiring initiatives then okay. vertically are the things that we're doing locally to broaden out the sources of candidates. Okay. I, 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 I was kind of trying to go, okay, wait. That's the orientation. It's the, it's the blue on the left that throws it off. Okay. Right. And then the other, uh, we're doing job coaching pilot, or trying to pull together a job coaching pilot for people in their probation period. I was trying to figure out how the Cuban, Cuban fellows of, of the Alameda County Social Services. Yeah, they do not. And so then this is a continuation of that. So pipeline programs down the left again, and then incumbent worker programs. Um, and so we, we've done a number of programs around local hiring. We're doing a lot uh, to develop the local community and give them opportunities to work with us or elsewhere. Uh, it's been a pretty significant investment. We've been fortunate that we've got $10 million. Uh, but if we're going to continue with this investment and developing employees, we're going to have to find funds from elsewhere to continue these programs. Otherwise, you know, we're going to have to make some tough choices. Ideally, we can find the funding from outside of the organization. What's OLE? Uh, OLA, Organization Learning and Effectiveness. So it's so our learning and development. It was, we had, um, 
probably two and a half years ago, we had a stronger OD element in that department. Right now, most of the focus is on learning and development, education of uh, managers. Uh, we do, we can do an early intervention if we need to, but predominantly the organization, once it implemented lean, it doesn't really make sense to me that we would then have a separate OE department because lean is in fact your organizational effectiveness division. Mm -hmm. The OD element of how you deal with people, that's a separate issue. And uh, But our focus in the last 18 to 24 months has been on education around the Leadership mm -hmm. Academy, making sure we've got everyone through that. So uh, next slide is sort of a transition. I'll talk more uh, at a future meeting around how we're rebranding HR uh, for a number of reasons. Um, but I'll, I'll leave it with this headline. About 90% of how people see HR in a public, en public agency or in this public agency is through the lens of labor relations. About 10% or less of what we do is labor relations. And so I think what we want to do is shift our employees' understanding of one, what's available to them, uh, two, why do we exist, what's the purpose of HR, uh, and three, uh, to call out stories from our employees, uh, success stories where employees have developed and worked their way through the organization, either with our support and help or without it. Yes. Do you, do you have a newsletter? Does HR We're working on that right now, so that's part of the rebranding. Right. We send out... Um, monthly or quarterly benefits um, newsletters that talks about that and we do regular communication but we're bringing bring a structure mm -hmm. to this that's more robust in terms of what we communicate and how. And because and you know these were great stories but also how do people find out about like um, you know the, the um, Ramon how did he find out that he or not Ramon, but um, Jola or Jola or, or someone who wants Joe Manet, who's now a part of this program to the High Road Training Partnership. How do they find out that this is available? I, I mean, I'm sure that they maybe there's something posted somewhere. They've never no, got it from the manager. No, we, we won't talk to them. Right, but so it's the newsletter that everybody gets and they're like, oh yeah, by the way, I can... So there are a couple of things. Uh, we knew we're working on rebranding newsletter right now, so we're in that, which is where these have come from, uh, these profiles. We're also developing videos of employees who've worked their way through, coming from diverse backgrounds, and so, you know, who've worked through the organization, uh, so people can actually see who works here, connect with them. If I go to the last, or the second to last, I remember sitting across the table with Cheryl was in the first negotiation I had when I arrived here as a SAN or a Padillan nurse bargaining on behalf of the union who spent 90% of her time at Kaiser. Okay. Uh, she started here as a CNA almost 30 years ago, and now she's the director of our ICU. And so the opportunities that we've afforded her and she has given us by staying here and working is a real success story. Uh, and as we look at this and others, we want to call these out for employees, want them so that they know, because I can tell you about a program in a newsletter, it's easy for you to connect if you can see someone who did it. And that person was in the role that you had. So this is part of a larger program to draw attention to that. The, the newsletter itself will get a mixed bag of who reads it, right. to, to be honest. Is it uh, paper or uh, digital, the newsletter? Yeah, it, it's both, but you have to remember 
uh, it, there will be both hard and digital. The thing that we'll get in this environment is we have many employees who don't read their emails, uh, EDS workers, nurses don't read it on the floor uh, because they can't. You know, they're, they're very busy and focused on their work. And so we have to do a mixture of two, but there are only elements. There will be stories on the intranet and we're rebranding or redesigning our internet page to make things easier for people to access. So we're going through a significant shift so employees understand that HR is there for them. It is not there to negotiate labor contracts. That's a small part of what we do, and I think it's a mindset shift, particularly in a public employer. If I look at the policies that we had, every policy in this company was a labor relations policy. Every policy. Now the team is working through every single policy, taking ownership in their particular department, rewriting them where necessary, and aligning them with their individual function. But that's not that's sort of a product of a public agency his, history. And as we move away from that and we build a HR function that's focused on our employees, regulation is just one of the things we happen to do. It is not the predominant thing that we do. But to do that, we have to make it clear to people what is available to them and why. And to do that, having these stories helps people understand who is in the organization, why they're in the organization, and their stories, and that if they stay with the organization, there are very much good opportunities for them. Um, this, the highlight of the call going to the graduation of the high road program is very moving for an employee who just wants to get better. He wants to go back into education. He wants that opportunity. His manager gave him the flex time to do that. He's still trying to work with him so he can go back into a, a high degree of education and then move on to other roles. And he wants ultimately to be a manager and director in food and nutrition services. And so he believes he can. We're going to create every opportunity we can. And that story is useful to our employees to understand that we will do everything we can to help them on that path. They may not get there, but we're going to do what we can to help them. And so it's shifting the perception of why the function of HR really exists away from just a negotiations organization. So, so Tony, are you, sorry, were you going to say something? No. no. So, so are you on this, on, I'm sorry, I'm a little lost. You said you weren't going to talk about the structure, uh, which I think begins on page 30. No, I'm not going to talk about the rebranding too much beyond these profiles. I am going to talk about the HR structure. Oh, okay. Um, and then the last slide is Alex Penner, who works for Mike, who came here as an intern uh, after an incredible life story of moving here at 16 and not being able to speak English. Uh, and his driving determination and his commitment to this community, uh, I think, is a, a really powerful story for our employees to see. One, to see other people like themselves. Uh, two, to see people driving for success in the organization and being able to make it and the opportunity that you know he was given here and also then the success he's made of that opportunity. Um, so those are part of the broader branding, the rebranding that we're doing. There are videos of employees who are very engaged in the process because they're now going to be seen by their colleagues online or our internet site. And it will help us build a profile also for the people we want to recruit. Right, and so you use it for multiple purposes. Who do we want to bring into the organization? More people like these. Who do they look like? They look like these people. And that allows us to, to show the face of the organization both internally to their colleagues and then externally to people we want to bring in. Okay, so um, next I'm going to move on to something that I thought was important for you to see before the Finance Committee tomorrow. Um, 
the budget, and I won't run you too far to, in the, into the budget. I'll just show you the bottom right. Um, as of earlier this week, we were $86 million away from getting to 1.47. Um, the original target for the year was uh, 2.8 uh, margin, uh, and right now uh, we're trying to close that $86, $86 million gap. And so as we look at that, we've been, we worked off-site, but in parallel to this, the budget process is ongoing. So there'll be a report out tomorrow at the Finance Committee of how we try and close that gap. Um, we had a recent off-site with about 50 leaders. I would say about 20 of those leaders were physicians, if not more, uh, to engage in a discussion about what else is going to have to give. Because there's not $86 million in the budget by just reducing um, the amount of um, equipment I buy uh, until you start cutting into employees from a cost perspective. About 77% of that budget is FTEs now, either pay or benefits. Uh, so you can't really cut down something that is predominantly labor without any impact on, on labor. And by labor, just people as opposed to labor unions, so there's no misunderstanding. We're trying to balance the mission and the margin. Uh, there's no question about what the population we're here to serve. At the same time, there's no question that the revenues that we're projecting for next year are, are pretty bleak in relation to the revenues we've received historically. And so we're looking at a number of things uh, that we'll discuss broadly at this meeting, separate and distinct from each individual manager having to cut their budget to try and make the goal. You said not having, like not department-wide 5% or 2%? No. So each department will set a goal, an objective. So my department objective was, I don't recall, I had one cost center week, we had a 40% reduction. Um, and my objective is, my target is to get there. And unless each department reaches their individual target, then we don't close that $86 million cap sufficiently to zero. And so those are individual targets I've got to pursue myself. Then you've got to look across the organization laterally and say, okay, what are we doing that we could stop doing? And when you look at those things, I'm going to use this slide, uh, you've got to look at no salary increases. These are system-wide. Say that one more time. These are the system-wide. Yeah. Uh, and, for those. And, and Tony, before you go through this, yes. Is, is there a specific um, factor that the off-site conversations identified as the source of the shortage? What What was off-target? What was the? It, it's It's revenue. The, the drop-off in revenue yeah. under the prime <laughs> program. Uh, and the way they're coming to an end, our supplementals are dropping by 100 million plus. Yeah. And so our, our funding is going down, our volume's flat. So the expenses to support that volume is pretty much flat beyond contractual requirements for salary increases, 5% for medications, everything that goes up. But our supplemental revenues are dropping off a cliff. And so with that comes the need to close that gap. My concern, why I wanted to bring this up, I know there's a finance committee, and I, call it, I know Joe's on the finance committee tomorrow, and this will be discussed in more detail. It was important that I tell you as the mm -hmm. HR committee the things that, are that may have to come down the pike and that we're going to have to deal with as an organization as we look at that gap, because it's not going to be without controversy when 77% of your costs are in, in, in the labor line. Mm -hmm. um, we were looking at furloughs. 
uh, freezing salaries for unrepresented staff, um, changes to the PTO plan, uh, by which I mean having not accruing for PTO for unrepresented employees. Uh, they call it a limited PTO in the high tech sector, it really isn't that. But what it means is you don't accrue for it as a liability. Um, and so that comes off the balance sheet. Possible changes to employee contribution to the health plan. Uh, possible changes to hardware sound. These are very minor. Uh, the bottom two are negligible in the, the impact they'd have. But we have to turn over every stone now. Um, you know, we have about 600 cell phones in the company. They cost about 60 per, uh, per month. Uh, per cell phone. Now, some people need them uh, to do their work. Others, we have to challenge whether those people need them anymore, whether you simply go to a no cell phone policy, you don't support the hardware. Tony? Yes. Um, I have a whole bunch of questions. Yeah, sure. But, uh, is it okay? So, um, uh, with these ideas, I mean, are you running formulas on, uh, on, like, okay, I look at each one. So, yeah. for, like, Changes in salary increase structure, and you said for unrepresented. Yeah. What percentage of that of, 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 of employees are unrepresented? Eight. Huh? Eight. Eight percent. Eight percent. Yeah. At one time it was eight, but now it's eight percent. Right. Eight percent. And so, you know, uh, I, I'm just. Are you running formulas on what this yes. looks like? And, and yeah. Um, Furloughs, no because that's going to depend. You're going to have to look department by department. The furlough, obviously, as you know, is someone not working, not getting paid. So that work's not going to go away. It, it is, in fact, if you do, I'll use an extreme example, one day a week is a 20% pay cut for that individual. Is that for unrepresented as well? Yeah, and we would have to have discussions. The, the, the issue with the clinical areas, obviously, if someone doesn't work, you've got to replace them. Yeah. So that's not, a, that's not an issue, that's just yeah. a reality. I don't mean it as an issue, but that's the reality. And so you've got to look at the support areas, and then when you do that, at some point, you've got to say the work will no longer get done because that, as the DMV may furlough people on one Friday a month, then that will be a day behind on everything. When you start to look at finances and accounting, that means everything's going to go backwards because they have work to get done and it will all be delayed. So, furloughs is more complicated. You can't do that in the clinical center. That's right. And, and you could, in the other areas, you can't because if you do it in revenue cycle, then you're not going to get paid and you start to run into cash flow issues. So, each area has an impact. It's just a different impact. You can't, in clinical, you can't not come to work because the patients won't be seen. Everything else is supporting it has a different impact, but it could be lesser. It's not going to be equal to the clinical impact, but it's going to be a lesser. The question is, what to what lesser degree does it impact the organization as a whole? So I just want to point out, so with the, with the change in salary, uh, possible change for PTO, yeah. employee contributions to help it, are all of those only for those underrepresented? For the most part, yeah. Because everyone's in a contract. That's right. And the, the, we have five contracts open. Right now we're negotiating. We, can make, we can't aggressively bargain. So if things are on the table, we can obviously deal with them. You can ask the union to open a contract I, you know, without being flipped. They could equally just say, no, we're not going to discuss that without other changes to the contract. And so the five contracts that are open right now are in negotiation. Obviously, we can discuss how we would approach that. But beyond that, it's really the unrepresented employees who are most significantly impacted. Do you have numbers associated with the total savings 
for each of these? Not, not yet. The, the PTO, we're working on it. I have a, a red line policy around this, and then we're running the, the math on it because there are some elements around FMLA and CIFRA that we have to ensure are covered. Uh, but we, we, I have a ballpark in my mind. It's not ready for mm -hmm. public consumption yet. Uh, the employee contribution to health plan, we're working with our uh, broker right now, and we're running multiple scenarios of what it would look like to increase individual contribution, family contribution. Uh, we have, we've got an analysis then of each of the labor contracts, what we can do under the current contract, and then what the impact would be on unrepresented staff. The other, the, the two bottom are fairly minor, and there is analysis of those as well. I mean, I have to assume. We're also looking at workforce reduction, but then the the associated service reduction that goes with it as well. Yes. Yeah, I would defer that to release in the finance committee tomorrow, but because that's really an op while there's an impact on people, that's really an operational question and a clinical <coughs> question. Really, for Gasson and release and and Delvecchio, um, we are looking at everything. There's a hundred million, well, eighty-six million dollar gap right now. Hundred million if you go back to the original goal of two point eight. Um, and we're looking at everything. This is what we're looking at from the HR perspective and analyzing. Mm -hmm. uh, and there will be numbers associated with these uh, with, with also assessed impact. One other thing, just so you're aware, the, the reduction in my body means there is no hospital week next year. There is no employee engagement survey. Um, all that money has come out so that we could make target. And so it it's pretty, uh, it's austere as it is, and that's without really cutting to the bone. And so each department's working their way through this. They're doing a yeoman's work and a heavy lift because it's hard to cut. Um, and the volume is the same, pretty much. So, so you're saying for most of what's on this page is only for the unrepresented 8%? I'm saying that PTO, flexible PTO would really likely be uh, directors and above. Mm -hmm. Probably wouldn't affect everyone. Okay. But that would allow us to do would remove uh, $2-3 million from the balance sheet in accrued PTO. Um, the health plan would probably affect everyone uh, to differing degrees depending on what's allowable under the contract. Furloughs would be unrepresented initially. Uh, freezes to salary would have to be applied only to the unrepresented staff um, and any changes that we determined we were going to make at the table in the five contracts that are currently under negotiation by determining how much we would authorize an offer to be to settle those contracts. And then to know the ACMIA contract will come up in June an SEIU contract will come up in March. Both, all three SEIU contracts will come up in March and April of next year. So within this fiscal year, uh, but um, outside of this calendar year. Is there, have you, have you looked at maybe changes in the health benefits rather than actually, you know, having people increase their contribution? Yeah, we're looking at various options right now. So we're working with a broker, and there, there are a lot of options that we can consider. There are other things that we're doing that we think are going to drop the cost by looking at who's on the health plan right now. Um, from, a, from an audit perspective, whether everyone who's receiving a benefit should be, but they're pretty, they're operational issues that we should be working through anyway. But we have to look at the benefit. We have to look at what the amount is paid for by employees. You know, the HS health plan, if you get hair, health care in the court is free. We have to determine whether that can be the case anymore. 
You know, that, that's just a real, a real question we have to ask. Do you cover an employee and have them cover their dependents? Do you cover part, part of the employee and part of the dependents? Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are variations on how you approach this problem, uh, but our due diligence is going to have to be to look at what, this, what the options are and what the cost reduction would be to the institution and also understand there's an impact on the employee and their families, and that's without question. But these are things that sort of financially fall under the HR remit, and so that we're going to have to do the work on to make the assessment, and then we're going to have to make decisions as an organization. And those are going to be impacted by other decisions that are made around service reductions, FTE reductions that may be made uh, in conjunction with decisions that the board will probably be asked to make at some point down the line, either at your retreat or, or another time through finance and the full board. So, question, what's yeah. hardware assignments? Uh, just IT. Oh, so okay. that's that's not really mine, but okay. it's... Uh, so, so in the paper I saw that the, I think it was the interns, uh, the residents walked out for 15 minutes. CIR, yeah. 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 And I saw what they walked out for, and it was pretty, it's really upsetting. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering... Which, which was what? I think that the report in the paper, which... I don't know if it's true, so I'm going to just say mm -hmm. carefully. I believe they were upset about uh, the funds available to them if they needed to purchase something for either their patient or some learning for themselves. They, they tell me there's, a, there's, a, there's an $80,000, maybe a seventy or $80,000 patient care fund. Mm -hmm. um, when... I don't want to get into the negotiation part, so I'm going to think yeah. carefully what, what we've shared in our uh, public statements. That fund is available and is predominantly used to buy equipment for patients' earplugs and so on. Our response is that's an operational issue. Hmm. And when you have a fund that you can spend without any authorization or any sort of controls, it means that that gap continues in the system. And therefore, places at the CapEx committee and at the operational committee on how things should be purchased were offered mm -hmm. to the residents, mm -hmm. as opposed to having a fund that sits there and is used. Historically, there have been pieces of equipment purchased with no support license to them, no way to support them after they're gone, and that's just not a good use of the organization's fund, nor is it how healthcare operates for the residents when they leave here. And so getting them involved in a CapEx committee or another committee to understand how funds are allocated, we thought is both useful to them educationally and gives the patients what they need instead of leaving the scap that's being funded inappropriately. So, so the only impression, uh, just in the way it was yeah. written, that I just had concerns about, it just sounded like if a physician is, you know, working with a patient and they realize that that patient may need, I'm making something up. Um, you know, they don't have the funds to buy uh, gloves or something for managing something mm -hmm. sensitive. The intern can purchase those for them, and it sounded like that's going to not be available. So, so let, let me let that go. I mean, yeah. it, there's many different ways to reframe that, so I'm, I'm perfectly fine that that needs to be reframed. But I do want to ask two things. One, um, are we talking to our employees about the gravity of the issue, and are there any efforts to ask the employees themselves where are their opportunities for savings? Because I do fear sometimes mm -hmm. <laughs> that 
you know, you don't know what's going on out there in departments and mm -hmm. in different places. And they probably see things that are wasteful, and they ask themselves, why do we do that? Why do we spend that money? Gee, if they only did this, you know, we'd be able to save money. Are we, are we on any of those campaigns? So in the last eight weeks, there have been probably 20-plus um, presentations at each campus. Uh, Luis and Mark Amy, I'll say, have done most of them. I have filled in, uh, not filled in, I've presented some of them instead of Luis. Been very clear what our financial position is, what we're trying to achieve. Uh, that our ask is of the employees to identify mm -hmm. cost reductions where possible and to share those with their manager and directly with us if they don't feel comfortable with mm -hmm. their manager. Mm -hmm. um, so we're clear, we, it, we have to be cautious about the interaction in a represented environment about what we're asking of employees so we don't step over a particular line. Uh, but the information is being shared directly with the employees mm -hmm. about the gravity of the situation. What I would say is, and I don't know this is just employees, but mid-level managers and also to our physicians, I don't think some are grasping the gravity of the situation as it relates mm -hmm. to our cash flow. I think many who've been here for multiple years and some for decades see this as a problem where the county will serve us or there's always been a solution in the past. With Nancy's intervention as the interim CFO um, and her support, we're very confident of the revenue, very clear. We're very clear of the liabilities back to the state. There is no question in our mind at this point in time that that number is a real number. Mm -hmm. and. What I'm not clear on, this is in being transparent, I don't know that our, our employees do, really do understand, regardless of us telling them. You know, the, the, you know, you can tell someone 20 times, people hear what they're ready to hear, not what you're ready to tell them. Mm -hmm. And whether or not we've laid a strong enough foundation for them to hear and understand where we really are, I'm not sure, in, in all honesty. So I think- Do we have a campaign around, but I mean, save something, see something, or see something, save something? Not to my knowledge, no. Okay. Right, the focus right now is everyone doing the, everyone is f entirely focused on the budget. Okay. The managers beyond that, on how they're gonna cut expenses, uh, are focused on the fact that Highland is full every single day, uh, and we're on what they would call tri uh, code red, triage, because they're full in the ED. And so managers are focused between that and trying to identify how they make their budget. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's a real stressor on the organization. We're trying to keep an eye on our EAP program and see if calls go up. The, it is a very difficult circumstance. It's not clear to me that everyone does fully understand the gravity at this point. Um, I think it's important that they do. Um, I, I'm sure that all of you do, and I think that will lead on to more discussions tomorrow at finance and then in the full board and at the retreat. Um, we do want our employees involved. I think uh, Mike, who was one of our most recent graduates from the Leadership Academy, one of the last things I say to all of them is, we don't have the answers, the employees do. Mm -hmm. So the goal is to open up to our employees to hear what they have to say and listen to their solutions. Mm -hmm. um, there is not a, an active campaign, as, as far as I'm aware right now, to, to go and seek it from each individual employee. I, I just want to say there's a lot of power in creating a small but intentional process for helping people identify savings. I, I did that at a major corporation. They were looking for a lot of process improvements and savings, and um, they gave 
very clear instructions about what that could look like and just encouraged it. Was it a public organization? Uh, no, it's a, 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 a publicly owned company, yeah, and it's it's some something that's on the stock exchange. They had to be public about some of the laws. I, have, I, I, I reinvented government under Vice President Gore, and I you know, worked in public organizations, and unfortunately, it's it's harder uh, in many ways to do it in a, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate that, yeah, and, and it's hard. in some ways, it's, it's harder to do it in an environment of, uh, um, of so many different competing um, interests. Mm -hmm. Especially when you're trying to always improve quality and have speed occur with employees and yeah. have employees identifying with with the you know the agency. It's you know and I, I I mentioned this uh, to Trustee Peterson before we started. One of our challenges that won't go away is we have 18 bargaining units, and that means you're always bargaining. Um, and so as you look at, you know, my goal is always to employ, improve employee engagement and satisfaction. Unions get ready for bargaining by finding issues employees have to negotiate over the table. It isn't just what's salary. They go and find issues. That's part of how this works. And then at times get the employees to the position being willing to take an action because that's what gives them leverage at the table. We have five of those right now. We have three upcoming. And we're constantly in that that zone, and so you can we can start other campaigns, but we're challenged with that at the same time we're, we're facing this fiscal issue, and asking an employee to look for a reduction at the same time that they're trying to get a three or four percent salary increase really is a difficult challenge. I'm not saying it's impossible, and I agree with your point. I think it's important that we do engage employees at all levels. There are some very specific challenges that we face because of timing and just where we are as an organization facing the launch of EPIC, the budget, and the multitude of contracts that we're in the middle of negotiating. Well, and um, it's just where we live and the, right. the environmental constraints that our employees face every day. And just are you calculating, and I, I should probably ask this at finance tomorrow night, yeah. I assume that in the budget deficit, the budget numbers we're calculating for cost of living adjustments for uh, the contracts that are currently... For the contracts, contracts... Don't tell me the amount, because this might be a closed session. No, the, the contracts that are settled, it, it's budgeted. Yeah. No, I'm talking about for the ones that are open. Uh, there's an amount budgeted. We have to budget. Well, it's under the projection. Yeah, to the to the overage, including including increase to the unrepresented employees as well. well you know, my my sense is that we may have to do something more radical in terms of looking at a particular uh, uh, looking at particular programs or services mm -hmm. rather than you know across the board uh, cuts like this. I mean, I just don't know if you're going to come up with the kind of funds you want or whatever. Yeah. No, I, I, I think it's a fair point, and there are risks to services when you start to cut 
individually in an area, right? So, it, it, you know, I'll use HR because it's non-clinical, so it's yeah. easy. If I have one labor relations person, we can't negotiate contracts. Yeah. Can't. I would have to hire external lawyers to do everything because there's no choice but to do that. So that's easy, that's a non-clinical area. For the clinical areas, when you come back to a simple, you can no longer provide the service. And so you have to consider that as you think, uh, as the board considers these in finance and in the full board, what is the better approach to help us get to this, right. this maybe, number? Maybe part of it is prioritizing the services. Yeah, that's, yeah. And that's going to be discussed, and uh, we've been discussing it in our meeting, whether I mean, a hospital should be part of the system. Of course, that's going to be something the board will discuss. And, um, but as we discuss that, it's a domino effect, whether we're transferring 40 patients uh, a month, you know, they cannot stay there. So, yeah. um, uh, um, but I think we should move on because it's yep. 20 after you. Unless anybody else has any comments on this? So I wanted to run through some changes we've made in the HR department. I haven't dived, I deliberately didn't dive into detail on all of these. There are just some of the changes we've made to the structure, and I'll run through it. Um, and, and I've been remiss. I didn't introduce Sheila Walker earlier. I'll mention already. Sheila, who's sitting over there, is our new director of total rewards, uh, and we've replaced Paula Peck in her role, uh, and has done an excellent job so far. And uh, you know, we, she's making significant changes in the department, and is really helping us uh, identify some potential savings in that area. So um, basically why we're here from a HR perspective, it is not to negotiate rubber contracts, that is just something we happen to do, uh, is to help deliver services and benefits to employees at all levels. I say because people are confused when you say employees, that presuming it doesn't mean managers, or that it means everyone, up to and including the CEO. Uh, to help develop the culture, and I say help because it's not the responsibility of HR to create the culture, it's an organizational decision. We advise and consult and help the organization move in a direction. The organization's leadership has to want to go in the direction, we can't be at odds with that. And so we're here to serve the patients uh, within this community. So we're a department in transition. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about why I changed the structure, what the point of the changes were, and how it will impact the employees. So this is our old chart right now. I'll run left to, li left to right. Um, so we have a director of total rewards, Sheila, who I just introduced. Uh, she has compensation, benefits, and retirement. And so we have five retirement plans right now. Uh, we have the benefits that we talked about earlier, health and wellness and other fringe benefits. Uh, and we have a compensation function. That's one person who helps us analyze individual job descriptions, pay rates, and then does background work when we're negotiating labor contracts. Uh, we have a director of labor relations, and I'll talk a little bit about more about that structure a little later, uh, Athena Buenconsejo. Uh, then a director of talent management, that was Lisa Marie, who uh, met earlier. Uh, and within that, she has recruitment, what I would call HR operation, it's our service center. Um, she has learning and education in there, or in there, and she has HRAS, uh, or effectively the internal IT department for HR. We have business partners out at each location now so they can directly lead in that facility. So they're partnered with the CEO in that facility on HR. Um, 
issues or the operational direction the leader wants to take, so they'll work as a partner for that individual. So Karen Hopkins is at Almeida Hospital and San Leandro Hospital and partners with the leaders there on all HR issues. And they're there to leverage the, the other HR services where needed and provide guidance to the leaders on HR and operational issues. Uh, then we have Director of Employee Health and Wellness. Uh, we took employee wellness, which was previously under total rewards, and put it with a clinician. And we've also taken workers' comp and lead management and put it under employee health as well. That's now led by a clinician, and we think she can drive more effectively the, the either reaching maximum, maximum medical improvement or medical retirement, or that the individual reaches the end of their accommodations and is terminated. And then uh, the executive director of Health Path, which is Jessica Pitt. Is that paid from grant? All of everything under Jessica is paid for by the grant, and so the entire funding for that role and everyone that works there. And where do the registry, is that all, all the registry um, arrangements come under? No, they do not. They're, they're by department, and so each operational department budgets for an amount of registry that they think they'll need in a given So you know the registry transactions come under HR? No, we uh, work with Vizient and Lisa Marie's team work with, um, if we're going to hire an interim person, they work on the non-clinical staff, we're working what's called an MSP now, a managed service provider arrangement with them, that's sort of a little hit and miss, we're trying to help Vizient get better at it, uh, so we are responsible for it, but we don't budget for any of it, they're, they're operational decisions about who they need in an individual department. And the work, workers' comp is under the Director of Employee Health Alumni? That's correct. It was previously under total rewards. We moved it here. It's going to be led by a clinician now. And so... And that she, person's been hired? Uh, Terry Dixon is here. She was the manager of employee health before. So we've elevated the role and we've moved the additional functions under her wellness and workers' comp and lead management. And so generally there are three buckets here. So self-service, that's what an employee can do for themselves. And so we use Lawson as our HRS system. It's pretty basic, but and once Epic's in place, if funds are available through CapEx, we'll improve Lawson and Access to have true employee self-service to do a lot more functions on there. Uh, inquiries, so we can provide information on the website, the internet, we can send out information, uh, but that's really the self-service portion. People can change their home address, they can change their name, uh, that sort of work they do through the system. And then beyond that, we have the service center. So the service center is, if you've got a question, if you think of it much like an IT help desk. So predefined answered, uh, employer manager support, so they have a problem with something. We actually have a, the help desks now. So we have tickets, an individual can open a ticket either on the phone or on the website, it will come to the service center. If they can resolve it for them, they will, and they close the ticket. If not, it gets elevated to a specialist in one of the functions. And those functions are centers of excellence. So expertise in recruitment, expertise in benefits, expertise in HR systems, learning, uh, and so on. And so those people are subject matter experts. Part of the purpose of this is to give the employees access to what they need when they need it and not have an expert who's spending 80% of their time answering what you would term level one questions, which is now in the service center, maybe level one and level two, and spending all their time, because we're paying them more, on the highly more demanding complex work. Is everything automated, like all of the pay stubs and the, you can access yeah. your That's all, you can, accept, and all that you can see all of that in Wilson self-service. Yeah. So they can see access, that manager can access all the, their employee information right. and see that in the system as well. 
So the business partner is something we implemented some time ago, about 18 months to 24 months ago. The purpose of those people is to be a partner with the executive leaders in their area and the managers so that they have some guidance if they're going to say, for example, do a reorg or a restructure, why would they do it, and then what do they need to do to make it effective and be a thought partner for that leader. And then leverage then the centers of excellence to get the work done. So if I was going to change a structure, I might need compensation input, I might need recruitment input, I might need labor relations input. And so that business partner can help that leader so they're not navigating it alone and they can get access to what they need when they need it. And then they're responsible to, for delivering on that in their particular areas. So the, this uh, diagram is really to give you some, some indication. So the service center and manager employee really operational. The business partner is more strategic, but, a, but, upon, but on the business side, they're a partner of the manager. In many ways, we don't have dotted lines into the VPs or the CEOs, but you could put a dotted line between them and the executive leadership team. And then the centers of expertise are strategic, but on the HR side. So their focus is on new benefit programs, changes in recruitment, diversity programs that we might be working on, but it's all focused on HR, while the business partners lean more towards the operations because that's where they sit. They're out in the field with the individual leaders. So talent management um, is this more, as I mentioned, Orange is the service center. That's what we implemented. And so that's to give people direct access to the information they need as quickly as possible, solve the problem, and move on. Or elevate it to a higher level to someone with a higher level of expertise. Then we have uh, Munich Chohan, who's our manager of uh, talent acquisition and onboarding, Arlene Gomez, who's our manager of learning and development, and Karen Skillman, who's our HRS manager. Who's is the training under Arlene? So the service center, and I'll flip through these pretty quickly because I've mentioned most of it, it's to respond to questions that employees have quickly. Get them what they need, a benefit question, how do I do open enrollment, get that resolved very quickly for them and let them move on. And then if it's a complex problem, could be a little management issue that starts becoming complicated, then we get them to the right place. So they're not trying to navigate things themselves and we can actually help them solve the issues that they really face in real time. Um, to get to this, uh, Lisa and Lee's team spent a, a large amount of time with managers out in the field and employees with multiple focus groups basically asking them, what do you want? What do you need? What are you not accessing? Uh, how can we help you? We went through multiple focus groups before we launched the service center, and now the service center is up and running. Where the next steps are, they've already implemented service level agreements, and it's now to start tracking our data as tickets come in so we can really see are we providing what people need? Or if tickets come in consistently around leave management or around a particular issue, we can then go out in the field and deliver training through the business partners. So we can solve the problems based on what we're seeing and get some data so we can deal with that. Labor uh, relations is pretty much the same, other than you'll see on the far right an investigator role. Um, what we want to put in place is investigators who, as far as they can be, are neutral. And so these people, or person right, is one person right now, would be a finder of fact. So if you think of the business partners or employee labor relations analysts, if you do it in the public sector, they're responsible for all types of disciplines and interactions. This person will just be an investigator. What are the facts of this individual case? I don't care if the person has got a good or bad disciplinary history. I don't care what happened before. 
what are the facts of this individual case? These are for grievances? For all types of it. Could be a sexual harassment claim, uh, could be bullying, could be a management issue. But this person then simply finds the facts, does not make a recommendation on the disciplinary level or what action should be taken, but simply lets us know what occurred on a factual basis. Then we can pull in the additional information that relates to whether or not this person's history is reflective of what we're hearing, but for the investigator, ideally it removes all elements of bias because they don't know anything about this employee other than the claim has been made, we investigate this issue, we interview the appropriate parties, and I develop and submit a report. And then someone else makes a decision about what should happen. And so that creates a level of neutrality that hasn't historically existed because the people dealing with discipline and regulations were also the investigators who have a history with the employees and the managers. And so what we're trying to do is separate those things out to create a more neutral environment and a more level playing field that creates a greater, a greater degree uh, for the employees in feeling they're secure in terms of talking to this person and then we're making decisions on the facts and their own opinions in it built on history. So that's where we're trying to get to for the most part with, with that change. The other part of this labor relations change is to move employee relations to the business partners. The labor relations department is going to be responsible for negotiating contracts, impact bargaining, and other matters that relate to the contract. It's not there to manage day-to-day -day issues and coaching. Those two here historically were blurred and it was employee and labor relations and I think that blurred the issue for employees and it made it difficult for managers who always relied on employee and labor relations. What we're trying to do is shift the responsibility of management to the manager with the appropriate tools. Labor relations negotiates and they're experts in that. The business partners are there to support the managers as they manage their staff. And so it changes the environment and the structure and ideally the way that employees both UHR and the support they get from us. The business partner structure is here. Um, Shimane has been here for a number of years. She led uh, recruitment for a, a while, and then she left and went to CPMC and then came back and joined us, fortunately. She's an Oakland resident. Uh, Joan uh, joined us from Sutter Health. Karen Hopkins, and Hopkins was at Alameda Hospital. Anthony joined us from a not-profit in San Francisco. And Paul Liam joined us from Asian Health, where he's the director of HR. And so these people are out in the field providing support HR services to, to the leaders, managers, and, and where appropriate to the employees. Uh, I've already talked about this more than I need to. So this is the intersection. Labor relations there to, to negotiate. Um, the employee relations part, which is really the business partner, is the relationship between the manager and the employee. Historically, the relationship has often, when things are not going well, become the relationship between the employee, labor relations, and the union. The employee relationship should be between the manager and the employee. The other parties are there to support that relationship, not to take over it. And so this restructure between labor relations and the business model is intended to support that. With that, it's going to mean the managers have to take a greater accountability than they have historically. Um, I don't understand the second bullet. Here? Yeah. Work uh, was being pulled from manager forward in their responsibility. So historically, uh, manager appears at Labor Relations and said the, the union's filed a level one grievance or my employee has done something I need a wine garden. 
uh, our historical practice was to drop a regulations consultant in there, and the manager would then step out. That's not the appropriate action. The manager can wind up an employee with a witness and the union. And with 5,000 employees, we couldn't hire enough people in regulations to do that. And so that grinds to a process. The sort of Damocles hangs over the employee's head for several weeks while they're waiting. And that's just not good for the employee. We need these things resolved quickly. So we pull what was pulled out in the relations, and then what I would also say is from a budgetary standpoint, what finance used to do, taking responsibility, this is manager work. We're asking more of managers, but it is not that it isn't manager work. It just the expectations are shifting here. And so we are going to be more demanding of what the managers do, and that's going to require them to have the skills to do that work. Right. And it's going to stop us stepping in. If an employee, I will give you an example. Leadership Academy, we had a supervisor from EVS. Uh, we talked through an example of what happened with a grievance. An employee returned from vacation, should have been granted a shift, was not granted the shift. Okay, so my question is, what should you do? He said, the, the employee needed to be paid. So you know the answer. What did you do? Well, the employee filed a grievance and I called labor relations. But you knew the answer. <laughs> And what happens then is the employee thinks the union is the answer and labor relations. You know the answer. Solve the problem. Check with someone if you're unsure, but then the employee sees you as the hero, the person who solved their issue, instead of these other people who step in. But that, again, is a, is a significant cultural shift. That is a very simple um, example of the sort of thing that's been going on for many, many years that we're trying to move away from, but we've got to give our supervisors and managers confidence that this is something they can do, and we will support them in doing it. We're not just going to leave them high and dry. We're going to help them get there, but it is, in fact, their work. They are their employees, not, not labor relations or HR's employees. That's the sort of shift we're, we're trying to make. So I, I mentioned Shira earlier and, and the structure around that. Uh, Terry Dixon I mentioned, so this is the employee health and wellness. Um, and Excuse me, is there yes. an empty spot there on that one? Where? Employee health? No. So... Terry Dixon was the manager of employee health. Uh, we promoted her to the director and we moved wellness and disability management and leave programs under her. Is there going to be a third person here? Will there be a third person in that? So, is there going to be another person in that box called employee health? No. Okay. It will tell you, uh, sorry, for an outright, she will continue to manage it directly, the staff in that area herself. Okay. We're not adding a role there. Right. I have a reason for my question, but I'll wait until the end. Oh, okay. Um, so, that's the, the structure. So, your question about employee health? Well, let me start. First of all, by saying I've had a series of emails this morning, and let me just ask you this, Terry. You've known me for four years now. What are the two words that I have tried to emphasize in any discussion about HR? Diversity and inclusion. And tell me if diversity and inclusion are included in any of the slides that you've shared. I think they're included in most of, if not all, the slides. No, no, no. Are they physically there? Are they physically Is present? there a role there? Yes. No. No. So, the only person that I can talk to about this in any significant way is Del Vecchio, and so I will do that. For the record, when I looked at this, it, it really upset me that there is not a person assigned to that particular role. And... 
Um, it's easy to say, well, we do a lot. We have all of these different programs or initiatives, but they're not formally managed and tracked and looked at in a way that we can consistently, you know, say are being looked at. So I firmly believe that in order to address inclusion, diversity, belonging, um, equity issues, that that has to be something that's tracked and it has to be someone's responsibility. Delvecchio may disagree, but I'm going to challenge him that he's leaving it to chance that this is going to be continued and that we don't need to worry about it, that there will always be these things. And in today's climate, I don't take any of that for granted. I think the racial anxiety that we have in our country is, is enormous and it's extensive. And every day we're seeing evidence of an erosion of how people talk about those values around inclusion and diversity. And so, you know, we are the safety net hospital that serves black and brown patients and people who are immigrants, people who are refugees. And there is strong evidence that we all have to be vigilant about health equity and health disparities and how people are treated inside the organization. So I know that you care about this. I know that Delvecchio cares about it. I'd like to see it become part of our internal framework and our structure so that we know it's going to be there after we're gone. Because our legacy should be that after we're done with the work that we've done, that it will be a permanent part of the way things operate inside our organization. And so um, I understand it's something that I need to take up with him or the board needs to take up with him. And so I will, but I want to say to you and to your staff that um, there is an enormous amount of effort going on in many organizations, many hospitals, to make sure that there is a chief diversity officer, that there is an equity uh, council, that there are programs around employee resource groups, that there are a lot of different initiatives. And I'm just stunned that we still, you know, just don't have that formally integrated into our overall people strategy, let's say. It's, there's pieces of it. But. The, 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 I would agree with a piece of it. I would question the approaches that, that you outline go beyond HR. Right? So you can build something to HR. Lisa Marie and I have been talking for several months about her fulfilling that role. I can give her a title today. That actually won't change anything. You know, it will mean that she's got another title and she's responsible for the work that she's already responsible for. There's no staff to add to it. There's no one to, tr you know, it doesn't magically become anything more because I call someone something else. Or you can call me the CHR and Chief Diversity Officer. That would, again, wouldn't change anything. We'd be doing the same programs. I'm right now writing a, a policy on transgender inclusion and employment policy. Those things won't change any more than we're you know, about to apply for the health equity index uh, for the LGBTQ community. We're working with employees on that. We're working on the committee. Right? Those things aren't suddenly going to change because we changed my title or I changed Lisa Marie's title. Um, so I don't disagree with your point. I understand your perspective. Um, all things, particularly you mentioned a couple of times, health equity, that goes outside of the HR realm. We can deal with employees and how we treat them, but there's a broader context to how an, an organization operates beyond HR. 
Um, we control employment policies. We control some of those to a degree, and they will have a significant impact. Um, but there are impacts on most of the people who come into the facility are not our employees, they're patient and family members. And so we have to think, and I think you're right, it's a discussion for you and Bill about where or if that role exists. Uh, and it may or may not belong in HR, but I think that is an appropriate discussion for you to have, as you've indicated you, you intend to do. Mm -hmm. I, I would just encourage you to take a look at the IHI report on reducing health disparities and also the American Hospital Association report from the Institute of Diversity and Health Equity. Um, all of those folks have said there must be an integrated strategy across HR, across um, patient engagement, community engagement, uh, and culture, internal culture, to really do that work. Um, so. The evidence is there, Tony, that that has tremendous impact for everyone. I, I'm not disagreeing, but you're indicating an integration across multiple functions, not HR. My, my point was you could mm -hmm. put someone in HR. Yep. Uh, if you're going to integrate across multiple areas, which I, I agree with, then that's not solely a HR function. It's possible that it will sit in HR, that they can be accountable for, but then the other areas you mentioned sit outside that realm. And you have to identify how that integration occurs. And so I, I'm not opposed to what you're saying. I agree. I think the question is how you tackle that problem, uh, whether you tackle it by uh, someone holding the title in the HR department or whether, you, yeah. whether it's someone in another part of the organization. Yeah. So ultimately, let me just finish with this. You know, you know, I said this to Del Vecchio in an email. I'm just being very transparent. One of the first quotes you hear in grad school, you know, any MBA program was Peter Drucker. If it isn't being measured, it's not being managed. Mm -hmm. And frankly, um, we don't have a dashboard on diversity or equity. We, we just sort of have it kind of spread out there. So we need to do something about that in order for there to be true accountability to this. And yes, if it's a person that's going to be um, assigned to that, then, you know, it's possibly going to be somebody in your department. It might be in somebody else's department. But we do need that dashboard of data to track to look at some of these issues that I've just raised. So. Can I pipe in real quick? Yeah, I, I think um, I can't see where else it would sit. Uh, since we have looked, since, since the key with inclusion and diversity is, for us is in our employment. It's in, in because we're patients. No, because we, we already have a mission to serve all, and so that kind of it's it's it's, it's baked into our mission that we are, our doors are open to everybody. But this, the 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 so people will come to us that need our care, um, but who we employ is where we can be make more conscious gains, I think, and, and actually track it. So I think it. I think it does belong in HR, and, and I would argue even if it belongs in other parts of the organization, let's figure out where it sits in your in your own chart. I think that's I think that's the, the, the thing because we we've brought these issues. We, we've looked at our employee um, you know, across departments and across positions. I mean, you've done good work bringing us the data when we've asked for it. I think your point is consciously having it somewhere on the own chart. So that somebody is tracking that data, I think I think makes a lot of sense, um, and obviously we can continue to have the conversation. But I, 
whether it belongs anywhere else, I think it does belong here. Um, and then let's, you know, since it's that committee, let's let's see how we can kind of plug that in, right? I agree. Yeah. Sure. Well, Tony, I can talk about it further. I think there was well, some. I, I think in discussions with Delvecchio, right? It's a body and it's work. Right. And I'll go back to the earlier mm -hmm. slide with a hundred million dollar gap. Yeah. So I'm not constantly opposed to it. I'm just being real about the budgetary constraints we're facing and shifting work. No, no, no shift. I think that you're actually there is the work is happening. Right? Exactly. Right. If you want exactly. someone to control it in, in the deliberate way that we has indicated, someone has to do that. That means either they're doing nothing now, which means I'm filling my job in the because they shouldn't be here. Which, which, I don't, which I don't believe is the case. No, I don't or, or we have to put someone in charge of that, which means you've got to leave them all the duties to do that work. But, because I think we're going to track it in a deliberate way, and I hope we carefully that and, and focus on it yeah. and follow through on it, particularly in the areas outside of HR, uh, as well as those inside, someone's going to drive at that work. <laughs> And, and so that, that means they're going to have the ability to do that. So, so Tony, the other possibility is that every manager, every supervisor has a responsibility around diversity and inclusion. And so then you begin to ask everyone to understand why is that a priority here? Why as a leader, as a manager, do I have on my performance uh, management plan some goal related to creating a more inclusive culture or creating a more inclusive work process or following more inclusive leadership um, uh, practices. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to stop, <laughs> but, but, I'm, but I'm also not going to try and, you know, keep us here for much longer because I feel like this is something that, that uh, Vecchia does need to hear more specifically. What are some of those options with, uh, understandably, not adding more cost to our you know, current situation. But these are very important priorities, mm -hmm. and I believe that they can be on someone's dashboard. Um, and frankly, a little bit of inclusion and diversity and belonging should be on every leader's dashboard if they manage human beings. That's what other companies are doing. That's what other organizations have done. It's why people invest in that kind of training. So it is possible, and, and I do understand the circumstances that we have in terms of our financial constraints. I believe it's doable. Thank you, Maria. Okay. And I think um, so this we'll start talk it. more about this, and yeah. is Mike going to present this? Or you? Well, no, I'm, I'm okay, great. So I'm, I'm going to talk about anything that's closed session, but I'm just going to do a brief update of where we are so you're aware of it. I'm going to slip out. I'm sorry. Yeah, I that's okay. I'm, we're late, and I apologize, but that's okay. I'll um, be somewhere. That's good. So this is just a quick highlight. These are the contracts. All of them. I won't bore you with it, what's going on right now in, in the various. We have five contracts that were in negotiations. ILWU, which is we have two units. HS. Uh, has an ILW local six contract at San Leandro Hospital. We've been negotiating since December 18. We've agreed to 11 articles. Uh, so there are 30 more articles in negotiations. The 10 has been pretty good so far. Uh, we're going back and forth a little bit. There's, there's a couple of sticking issues, and I think once we resolve those, the, the other issues will fall by the wayside. Uh, the two CNA contracts, which are probably considered the largest in CIR right now, 
Uh, we've been negotiating for a long period of time. So for months, when did the negotiations end? Uh, I think, I've got to think about December or earlier. Right. Um, and that's pretty, I mean, that's not a huge amount of time, right? Well, it depends how you view it. We, we have all our proposals on the table some time ago. It's unclear when they will finish making ongoing proposals. So it's difficult to see the end um, mm -hmm. because they haven't agreed to an end date for, for making final proposals. So on the San Leandro side, there are significant changes um, that we've talked about in closed session. Uh, we're trying to get a contract in both places as much as possible where we align the needs of the organization. Just as a reminder, in the last three years, Alameda Hospital's nurses have received a 28% increase in pay. Uh, San Leandro Hospital nurses have received 18% increases in pay over the three years of the contract. And so there have been substantial gives. Very little was changed in the contract last time uh, on either side uh, because the main issue, uh, as we had discussed, was that we were having trouble recruiting at Alameda Hospital in particular, and so that's why that 28% increase has occurred over three years. Uh, San Andreas was slightly less. Uh, now they're pretty much in line with the salaries in the quarter. Uh, BTC, uh, Bill Tribes Council, we've been negotiating since August of 18. Uh, we have areas there where they're 64% above market. Uh, that is, they have stationary engineers, carpenters, locksmiths, um, and a couple of other professions in there. Basically, they're paid like stationary engineers in, in local 39 who have done apprenticeships and would cover all of those subspecialties. How many people? About 15, maybe more than that, actually. 15 to 17, if I recall correctly. 15 to 17? Yeah. And when, when did that contract end? August of 18. August 18. Huh. And we've been in negotiations with CIA, the Cell Residence Union, uh, since October. Um, and how many again? How many in there? Mm -hmm. About 100, a little bit over, maybe 110. Residents, uh, year one through four, including um, senior residents. Um, We've signed a lot, if I recall, we've signed about 11 TAs with this group. Uh, they rejected our last proposal. Uh, there are a number of changes we're seeking uh, around financial stewardship. The one that Maria raised earlier is one of the issues. Uh, there are others in there that, that, that are in the public domain our communication about food. They receive $30 a day. That's more than most of the other uh, public health systems pay for residents and a number of other issues that we're trying, to, we're trying to resolve with them. They negotiated earlier this week and we'll negotiate again next week. And so we're trying to resolve the issues um, and we'll continue to sit at the table with them and hopefully we can, we can thrash that out. Uh, the CNA ones are, are dragging on uh, to answer your early question. Negotiation can go on for a long time. The issue is was it all items on the table so you clear the universe of the discussion. It's very difficult when the other party hasn't put everything on the table and you've been very clear we have nothing, we have no other proposals to make other than the final economic proposal. But we've, we've made it open, we've put proposals on the table and so we've had negotiations on the proposals, right? Uh, some of them. Right. The vast majority, there's been no counter on at this point in time. And so that starts to become the issue about it taking a long time. Um, you have to negotiate. And so that, that ultimately becomes the issue. Are you willing to make counters on them? Or are you not willing to make any movement on the proposals? 
or are you simply not engaging on those particular issues? And so I, I don't want to state what the union is for other than in certain instances, um, but that's going to take a long time. You know, you have to you have to get the universe of what you're willing to talk about done. It's unclear that they are not going to make more proposals. So you don't know. They're clear on everything that we have mm -hmm. to propose. We're unclear on everything they're proposing at this point, and so you don't know when the end's in sight. Is there a time limit, though? Just sorry, is no. there a time limit? To no. As long as we're making progress and negotiating in good faith, uh, one would hope we're making progress. Do you like a date and call We've offered them 20 plus dates. Uh, we've offered them every single week to be at the table and negotiate. We want to resolve the contract. It's not healthy for that, for the employees or for us um, to be in negotiation for months and months. It's not useful. Um, and not because we just want it to be over, but it's not useful to anyone to just sit at the table for long periods of time. We need to resolve the final issues. So our hope is to get those issues resolved. We're making progress in the other areas, and I hope we'll be do the same with CNA. So you have, you have a couple of... Am I reading this right on on the uh, on that more expansive yeah. list that you have two contracts? One that ended in June 30th, 2017. Who's that? Uh, UAPD. That was that's resolved. Sorry, that's the type. And the other one is CNA at Southern um, Parkridge. That's resolved as well. Okay. So UAPD resolved. We have the final contract, and, and that is closed. And the Parkbridge CNA contract is closed as well at this point. So sorry, that those are typos. Got it. And if they never come back to the table, is there any recourse? Yeah. Any? I mean, there are, there are little steps that we would go through at that point in time. Well, there would be back, Well, now I'm 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 just trying to understand. I mean. I'm sure you've offered, you've put on the table different dates, but if there's never a response. Yeah, they've responded and, and we have dates set up. We would like to meet more frequently because we think that will help resolve the contract. Okay. Um, you know, the ideal for us is to sit at the table, work out the issues and, and gain resolution. We don't expect to agree on every issue, but we expect hopefully to get counters so we can work our way through the contract and get to the end of the negotiation where we either agree we agree to disagree, but you have to be going back and forward to get to that point. You know, there are certainly going to be issues that they make proposals on that we won't agree on, and likewise, I expect that to be true for them. Um, we don't expect them to agree with everything, um, but our hope is to engage in a, a thorough negotiation to get to a conclusion. And the, the BTC, is that a typo too? That no, that's open. That's been the, over two years. Uh, we had, in that period of time, we had a real a reopener that was closed and we have been negotiating for some time. Yeah. We have, we, have, we have offered them the opportunity to restructure, to look like Local 39, which ha would engage a higher level of pay for a higher level of skill. Uh, they're still considering it. Mm. And they're just continuing on the old contract? Yeah, that's correct. We have extensions on the CNA contracts that have been agreed through the end of this month. So it's very challenging. I mean, you have yeah. you have how many employees in this division? In labor relations. Um, right now, I think nine. Wow. So you have like one employee gets three contracts or something? Yes. yes. This negotiate. Well, and some of them are not... Uh, not Right, right. I'm thinking right. about how I phrase this. Some of them are not negotiators. Right, right. That's part of the, the discussion I had about restructuring, right. that some of them are not 
weather negotiators. They don't have the skill. David Abella, who's sitting at the back there, is, uh, reports to Mike. is one of our attorneys to negotiate our UAPD contract. And so it, it's a highly sought-after skill. Outside of the public sector, it's unusual that anyone below the director or above level would ever negotiate a labor contract. You typically bring in outside counsel. We have to participate? No. Uh, and uh, as far as possible, I, I no longer do. Uh, Mike has negotiated many contracts in his time. And as much as possible, I don't island myself at this point because it makes it much more difficult and it can become all-consuming. The last SEIU contract was two to four days a week for 18 months. It, it would consume all the time. So Athena has done an excellent job. She's come from a very strong labor negotiations background and has strengthened that area and is building a very strong negotiations team. We hired one of the SEIU representatives who's come onto our team um, and is doing an excellent job as well. Andrew Dyko's negotiating contracts extremely well. So. so you basically have right now five or six open? Five, five open right now. Acme, Acme are pending in June, and then the two SEIU, con two large contracts come open in March, March 31st of next year. Uh, well, this is a challenge for you, huh? It's, yeah. mm -hmm. it's, it's certainly interesting. So do you have in our um, guide or anywhere else, do we know to anticipate that one hand that you have yeah, dates, yeah. That's now, constantly updated, right? Yeah, I'm going to refer to a couple of things that were typos and I'll have it refreshed and I'll have it yeah. shared and, and, right. and put yeah. it somewhere uh, through Ron that you can yeah, access you can it. Put it, it, on it. On that, um, I think it yeah, be so you can access that. Yeah, right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, yeah, that was something that we had talked about and I think it's important to, for us to keep in mind that these are things that, that the HR department is Constant. Constantly. Yeah. Yeah, with all the different contracts and um, those are things that can't that can't be cut that can't. Right. Thank you, Tony. Anything else? No, I appreciate the feedback. We'll work on the, the metrics. Uh, I know he's going to talk to Del Vecchio. Those are the two big takeaways. Okay. With that, well, um, there is one more item on that, Mike. There is this uh, report on. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, the retirement. I'm not on that committee anymore, so, yeah. I'm so I, I will just give a quick report that we met on February 1st. Um, the entire committee was there. We welcomed two new members of the, the committee. Uh, Trustee, me, Trustee Peterson joined as a member of the committee. And uh, Gordon McCauley, uh, who is a volunteer, uh, Gordon works in our internal audit department, so he is the other, uh, replaced the open seat we had for uh, an employee member. So the only member we're missing at this point is a, um, the CFO, which is a ex-officio position. So once the new CFO is on board, we'll have that uh, seat filled as well, too. Uh, the primary item of new business that was discussed was uh, consideration of terminating our 457F uh, deferred compensation plan. Uh, this is a very small plan. Uh, perhaps some of the rationale for creating the first instance, you know, really just didn't pan out. Um, and so at this point, um, you know, the recommendation is that, you know, we... Um, you know, take the steps to go ahead and terminate the plan because it's just really not being used by any of the uh, target population, which is you know, the executives uh, in the organization. So that will be going through the process in subsequent meetings. Uh, the investment report was generally good. Um, the uh, plans, uh, the combined plans, are going to continue to show good um, market-based performance. Uh, no 
out of the ordinary results. You know, when you look at you know what the markets are doing generally, our our plans performed as well, if not better, than uh, generally across the market. And then the information that looks at uh, how our plans are being used uh, that continues to be strong. Um, you know, Prudential, which is our investment advisor for the plans, um, provides benchmarking information. You know, which looks at how similar similar organizations what their employees do in terms of their average balances. You know, the frequency of contribution and you know all the things that go into looking at what happens within the plan. And and typically, you know, Alameda Health System, you know, is above the benchmark for our target group. You know, which you know was a good sign of confidence in the plan and actually use of the plan. And it's interesting there are a couple of is where we're below the benchmarks, and those are the things that we target, you know, for potential employee education, things along those lines. So, for example, we're a little bit higher on loads, and so we've discussed, you know, what sort of educational opportunities there may be for employees. Uh, we're a little bit higher on employees uh, who don't actively manage their accounts. They you know, basically just default to them. And so we've looked at that in terms of, okay, how do we target, you know, education, which is ongoing throughout the year, to, you know, draw those employees out and, you know, perhaps engage them to talk about other opportunities um, they have. So, but, you know, generally speaking, uh, it's uh, it's very good. The uh, plan is up by about a, a little under $200 million, you know, as of um, the end of last year, um, and uh, we have uh, about 3,200 participants in the plans with average account balances around a little over $60,000. And so again, for a public employer plan, that's that's pretty strong uh, in terms, you know, particularly when you know a lot. Of, there are a number of these employees who are also in Sarah as well too. So it represents both. Um, the uh, update on the closure of the. Um, uh, the Alameda Hospital plan, um, that's all going according uh, uh, to plan, uh, no surprises there. So um, that, that was pretty much it. Then that's me. Of course, Tracy. <laughs> of course. Good, thank you, Mike. Thank you. Well, we'll start Alameda representing them. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll start then, Richard.